from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Here it is. The life appeared. Same word. He appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time. God the Son took to himself human nature. He took on flesh and the invisible became visible. He wrote in John 1.14, We have seen his glory. That's what happened at Christmas. John uses this word to describe the incarnation. He also uses this word to describe Jesus' words and his works. His words and his works. When Jesus speaks and Jesus acts... He makes his glories known. It appears we see his greatness. Third, John uses the word uh, appearing to describe Jesus after the resurrection, his post-resurrection appearances. He died on the cross. They took him down from the cross. They wrapped him in linen. They laid him in the tomb. He became invisible. He went into the tomb, but he rose again and he appeared He appeared, the invisible becoming visible, the risen Savior. We see Him. And then finally, He uses this word to describe uh, the second coming. He's coming back. Jesus is coming back. We don't see Him now, but He's coming back. No one on the planet sees Him now, but He's coming, and we're waiting for His coming. We're waiting for His appearing Last Sunday we sang the carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's one of the most beautiful uh, songs. And each verse describes what the Lord Jesus is going to do when he comes. What's he going to do? He's going to ransom his people. He's going to cheer us by his presence. He's going to disperse the gloom of night. He's going to bind his people together. He's going to fill the world with heaven's peace. He came once. He appeared once. It was Christmas. We celebrate it. He will appear again And that's our hope. Now John describes it not just with the word appearing, he describes it with the word coming. At the end of verse 28, he talks about his coming. Now this is a Greek word that you probably have heard before. It's come over into our English language. It's the word parousia, parousia. Paul uses parousia more often than John does. In fact, this is John's only time he ever uses this word, uh, coming. It's a technical term. The word parousia referred to an official visit of an emperor. When the emperor would come to visit his subjects, he would come in all his splendor, and it would be an official visit, an official coming. It would be the parousia, his visible appearing. Uh, It is said of Queen Elizabeth, I'm not sure if this is true, but Queen Elizabeth visits her subjects. It's said of her that wherever Queen Elizabeth goes, it smells like fresh paint. Because before the queen arrives, you paint. Make everything look as good as it can. A couple of years ago, Kathy and I were in uh, Philadelphia, and we were visiting the city a couple of days before Pope Francis was uh, was coming to make his official papal visit. Uh, there were streets that were closed, and there were metal gates everywhere to, uh, for crowd control. Uh, his picture was on every post. Uh, there was a banner of the Pope. Uh, the Pope is coming to Philadelphia. Now, think about this with me here. In John's day, in Jesus' day, if the emperor showed up, it might be your life's only chance to see the emperor. His image would be badly minted into coins, but you can see the emperor. Emperor, but think nowadays you can see pictures of the Pope anytime you want. 
can pull out your phone and look at probably hundreds, if not thousands, of pictures of the Pope. And, and when, when the Pope visited Philadelphia, if you sat home and watched it on television, you probably could get a better view of seeing the Pope from your, from your recliner on the television than to go to Philadelphia and see him. But thousands of people went for the chance to see the Pope. It's the Pope's coming. Jesus is coming. We'll actually see him with our eyes. This is the hope and expectation of every follower of Jesus. We're waiting for him to come. There's a program on my computer. If you have Windows, you probably have the same program. So when I turn my computer on, the login page comes. And just before I get my little password bar that comes up, there's this beautiful picture. Does your computer do that? Mountains, lakes, beaches. It's beautiful pictures. And I often, when I turn my computer, I look at them. And I, I think to myself, oh, man, I'd like to see that for real. I'd like to really be there and really see that. Brothers and sisters, we pick up the Bible and we read here about the Lord Jesus. And if we are wise, we think to ourselves and we read it, oh, I can't wait to see him for real. I mean, here, here's this picture of him in words, but someday we're going to see him for real, face to face. Because he's coming back. Our faith is not yet complete. We don't have everything that God promised us. His work in you is not yet finished. He has not yet fulfilled all of his plans. We have the down payment, but the rest is yet to come when the Lord Jesus comes. When I was a junior in high school, I was given a, um, a savings bond, a U.S. savings bond. It took 20 years maybe 25, but it finally reached its full value. There's a sense in which the Bible is like that savings bond. Here are the promises, and the full value of the promises is yet to come. We'll only have everything that God promised on that great day when the Lord Jesus returns, and we see him. Is that your hope? It's Christmas time. I remember a conversation I had with my grandmother several years ago. Uh, my aunts and uncles would have phone conversations and they would plan the day when our family was getting together for Christmas. It would be Divini Christmas. And um, sometimes it happened actually on Christmas Day, but sometimes it didn't. Well, we were talking to my, I was talking to my grandmother one day about this and I said, so is it okay with you if we don't get together on Christmas? And she said, Christmas is whatever day that my whole family is together doesn't matter to me what day it is as long as we're together. So there we would sit, all of us, my aunts and uncles and my cousins. My grandmother was the happiest person in the room. She, the reason she was the happiest person in the room is because she was surrounded by all the people that she loved. You know what Jesus says in John 17? He prays and he says to the Father, I can't wait, I'm paraphrasing, my great desire is that my people would be with me I want them to be with me. Do you know when the Lord Jesus returns who the happiest person in the room is going to be? It's going to be the Lord Jesus himself because he has all of his people with him. He's coming back. Is that your hope? He can't wait. We should think about this because sometimes followers of Jesus, well, we struggle here a little bit. Some of you... um, when I talk about wanting or waiting for Jesus' return, you think about things, they come pretty quickly to your mind. This is pretty normal, I think. 
you think of things that you want to happen first before he comes back. Sure, I want him to come back, but, you know, before he comes back, I really would like to get married. Or before he comes back, I, uh, I want to have children. Or before he comes back, I want to retire. I take my alarm clock and throw it out the window, right? Before he comes back, I just, you know, just a little bit, I'd like to experience that, right? Or you're waiting for something to happen. You're waiting for your prodigal son to come home. Or you're waiting for your, your parents to become followers of Christ. Jesus, I, I want Jesus to come back, but not until... And you fill in the blank. Does anyone have a list like that? What do you do with a list like that? I want to, can I suggest something to you this morning? Can I suggest to you that a list like that is a, is a sign, it's a symptom really of, of, a, of a deeper valuation problem? You know the fun you can have with a toddler? If a toddler is ever holding a dime, go up to them with a nickel and offer to trade. This is how I make most of my money. If you, if you see a, a toddler with a dime and you go up to them and, and with a nickel and say, I will trade you, I'll give you this nickel if you give me that dime, that toddler will take it, right? Why? Because a nickel's bigger. It's got to be worth more money. I'm trading up. That poor toddler, so stupid. <laughs> right? Why does a toddler make that trade? Toddler makes that trade. It's an ignorance problem. They have an information problem, a valuation problem. What's on your list? I want Jesus to come back, but not until. Can I suggest to you that you, you're trading dimes for nickels? Except on an infinitely grander scale, right? This list that you have, it's actually a form of idolatry. You have underestimated what it will be like for when he comes back. You've undervalued that, and you have overestimated the value of the things on your list. It's a form of idolatry. It's a hard thing to say, but it strikes me as something that is completely normal. This is one of the expressions of our alienation from God, one of the expressions of, of, of sin. We're not very good at valuing things properly. See, sin at its heart is devaluing God and devaluing His Word and elevating other things in His place, to the place that God deserves, saying, yes, I want Jesus to come back, but only until is, is one of the reasons, saying that is one of the reasons that we're, we're guilty before Him. It's one of the, the evidences of defiling brokenness. Jesus is coming back. Do you know what that means? What He's going to accomplish when He comes? How he's going to put things right? That thing that you're holding on to, even if it's a good desire not yet fulfilled, when Jesus comes back, he's going to do with it exactly what is right. Can I encourage you to trust him with that? Yes, I want Jesus to come back, but not until. Can you take that thing that's on your list and, and turn it over to him with great confidence that he'll do with that thing what is right and what is good. And that when he, he takes that concern that you have, his timing will be perfect when he returns. I don't know when it will be, but his timing will be perfect. And he'll take that thing that you think is still broken and he'll do with it something that is good and true and beautiful and right. 
you trust him that he'll do that? Jesus is, is coming back. He's going to fill the world with goodness and joy and peace and righteousness. And every decision he makes when he comes back will be perfect. Now, John's going to talk about this again and again and again. He's going to talk about this theme. But I, I wanted to, before we finish here, I want to talk about why this coming of his matters. Why we hope for it, yes, but, but why it matters. And there's two reasons why John gives us in this text. First, the second coming of Christ pushes us to persevere. It pushes us to persevere. That's where we started, isn't it? Look at verse 28, follow the logic. And now, dear children, continue in him. Persevere in him. Remain in him. Abide in him. Stick with it. Don't walk away. Keep following Christ. Notice the logic. So that, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. He's coming back. Don't quit following him. Keep at it. Why? Because when he comes back, it will mean vindication. It will be proof that following him was the right choice. It was worth it. John says we'll have confidence before him. He uses this word four times in his, in his letter. Uh, twice he talks about the boldness that we have in prayer. We have confidence in coming to him in prayer. And twice he uses it about his second coming. Once here, and then look over at 1 John 4:17. He uses the same word confidence in 1 John 4, 17. He says, This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment in this world we are like Jesus. Having confidence before him. And the opposite of this sort of confidence is shame. Shame specifically before Jesus. This is the sort of shame that knew, that knows the right path, but refuses to take it. If following him is the right path, there's vindication, knowing that path and not taking it, there's shame when he comes. John appears here to be quoting essentially Jesus in Mark chapter 8. Jesus says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Now, let's think about this. We should admit it. It is not popular to follow Jesus. I mean, it's not popular to really follow him. To follow him where the the point where you publicly own him and name his cause it is not yet clear that it is worth the sacrifices that are involved in following him. It's not evident. It's not, it's not clear. You may have family and friends who question your judgment. D- don't be intimidated by them. Uh, Jesus' family questioned his sanity too. Right? It's too early to write the end of the story. Vindication is coming. Vindication is coming. It's coming someday because Jesus is coming. So his coming provokes us to persevere, to follow him hard. Now secondly, his coming here matters because it points you toward righteousness. It points you toward righteousness. It's not easy here in this passage to see the connection between verses 28 and 29. It seems like John is is abrupt here. I think the connection is that when Jesus comes, there'll be judgment. And who's going to stand in the judgment? Well, the righteous will. The righteous will stand in the judgment. 
So um, if you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Pursue righteousness. Points us towards righteousness. Remember, perseverance is more than just saying the right things about Jesus. We've talked about this in in chapter 2. There were these false teachers. They were saying the wrong things about Jesus. John says, don't say the wrong things about Jesus. But perseverance also means living like Jesus lived. Following him. Practicing righteousness. John even goes a step further back, back than that. He says, Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. It's important to to get the order right. right? So being born of God means living righteously. And living righteously means when he comes, confidence before him. It starts with the being born of him. The righteousness is the fruit of being born of him. It's a sign of your relationship with him. Here's an image that John uses ten times in the book of 1 John. Here's the first time. It's an image that we use a lot. If anybody ever talks about being born again, they're using this, this imagery that John uses here. Being born of him. When you turn to, <coughs> excuse me. When you turn to Jesus, there is such a radical change in your life that the best image that John can use is that in your effect, born again. You have a new life. You haven't emerged literally from your mother's womb. That was Nicodemus' mistake. But you have a completely new relationship with God. Through the Spirit, through the Word, God has become your Father. You're a member of the family. You're born of Him. And, and, and your life is different. That's what it means to be a Christian, doesn't it? Turning from your sin... This devaluing of God, turning to Jesus, the one who paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. Jesus died on the cross in your place, bearing God's wrath, and turning to him, trusting in him as your sin bearer, your Savior, brings this radical change. You are born again. And the radical change manifests itself in righteousness. We'll talk about this again in the weeks that are to come. It's the major emphasis of the next several verses. But I want to remind you this morning that because of this, the second coming, it matters. It matters every time you turn from temptation. Every time on your phone or on your computer, when that illicit picture comes up and and you're tempted to click and, and go further, you shut the computer, you turn your phone off, it matters, that choice matters because Jesus is coming again. Every time that those thoughts start wandering through your mind, these worries and fears, and you quote to yourself Philippians 4, don't be anxious about anything, but by prayer and supplication, make your requests made known to God, and the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your heart and mind. Every time you do that, it matters. It matters because Jesus is coming again. That choice will be shown to be right. It matters when you pursue righteousness because Jesus is coming back. When Dwight Eisenhower was president, he spent one August in Denver. He was on vacation in Denver and he heard about a little boy whose name was Paul Haley. Paul Haley was six years old and he was dying of incurable cancer. Paul Haley's great desire in life was to meet the President of the United States. So Eisenhower, one morning, he got up and he said to his aide, let's go visit Paul Haley. Paul Haley didn't live that far away. So they got in the presidential limo. The Secret Service was accompanying them. And they pulled up flags waving from the fender. 
pulled up in front of Paul Haley's house. It was a Sunday morning in August. Dwight Eisenhower walked up to the door, knocked on the door, and, and Paul Haley's dad, Don Haley, uh, started talking before the door was completely open. He said, what can I do for you? There he was standing in his stained T-shirt, and his dirty jeans, and he hadn't shaved yet. He hadn't been up that long. And there's Dwight Eisenhower standing in front of him. President Eisenhower said, is Paul here? The six-year-old boy came out, stood in front of Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower kneeled there, Paul, staring at the face that he admired the most in the world. Eisenhower said, Paul, it's good to meet you. My name is Dwight Eisenhower. This is the limo. Would you like to come and look at my car? So they went out, and Eisenhower gave him a tour of the car, and they sat in the back seat for a little bit and talked. And then they got out, and, and Eisenhower walked Paul back to his house, and, and poor Don Haley stood there just watching this whole thing. Paul Haley was thrilled. He went back in the house. News spread a little bit in, in, in Denver about what the president had done, and everybody, everybody who heard the story was charmed and impressed and it gladdened everybody's heart except poor Don Haley. Because <laughs> Donald Haley thought to himself, I answered the door to the President of the United States and I was unshaven, I had dirty clothes on. I just wasn't ready. He wasn't ready. Someone, brothers and sisters, infinitely more important is coming. He's the Lord Jesus. How do you get ready for him to come? You get ready for him to come by persevering, by continuing in him, by pursuing righteousness. He really is coming. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for this reminder of this good news. Oh Lord, we confess to you that we are prone to forget about your coming. Lord, we're prone to, to settle in and, and we're prone to think that our happiness is invested only here in this life. We're, we're prone to think that this is all that there is, that this is life, this is, this is it. And we forget that you're coming again. Father, I do pray that you would fill us with joy at the prospect of your coming. Well, it could be today. You, you, you could come today and welcome us to be with you forever. Uh, Lord, as, as we anticipate that, fill us with joy at the prospect. Help us to deal with our list. That list, I, I want you to come until, I don't want you to come until. Help us to trust you with the list that we have. And, and Father, I pray that this week we would persevere in pursuing righteousness because you, Lord Jesus, are coming back. Fill us with joy. Drive us on. Push us to follow you more faithfully. Do that for us as a congregation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.